1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have your Bibles open, turn to 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one off the back. First Samuel 16, verse seven. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so we bless your name, Father. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, that your intentions are so much more personal, so intimate, so focused, and so direct, that you look to the heart, and you desire our hearts. And we recognize, even as we began to look at Wednesday night, we recognize that the heart given over to you will have the fruit of the Spirit in both soul and body, And we desire to learn what that means, to have hearts given over to you, even as the heart is what you desire and what you see and what you look to and how you view us. Father, I'm thankful you don't view us in the flesh. You don't look at us uh, by our intellect. You are not impressed by these things. But a person after your own heart, a person offering their heart to you, Lord, we know you do not despise. We know that you receive with great joy. So, Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts this morning. And for our part, would you help us, Lord, to see with the eyes of our heart, to have hearts open to hear you and to comprehend what it is you have for us. And I thank you for these things and the opportunity we have, not just to study a book, but to hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is one of the toughest passages of scripture. It's, it's an amazing passage. I think seminal and absolutely vital to Christian faith. I don't know how many times you've been through 1 Samuel 16. I'm finding the further we go into Samuel, the more important this entire book is. I'm also finding what the commentarians and the scholars and the critics are saying, and, and that is that this is a tough book because it raises biblical questions. And it challenges our our, uh, simple theology. It makes us really think through why we believe what we believe and and are we okay with the Bible saying things that make us uncomfortable? Well, there's gonna be some of that in this chapter. But before we get there, I wanna read to you from Mark chapter 10, picking up in verse 46, a story. You can just listen to this. When they came to Jericho, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man saying, take courage, stand up, he's calling you. (laughs) Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, 
to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Blind Bartimaeus, I think of him as Bart. Blind Barty, his name Bartimaeus means son of honor, but it was less than an honorable position that he found himself in at this point in his life that he's sitting like a beggar on the side of the road, dismissed by the people, be quiet already, shut up, come on. This is Jesus the Nazarene, stop your shouting. Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries out. And this sadly ironic name, son of honor, for this blind beggar sitting on the road, it's ironic, it's sad until he meets Jesus. And he recognizes Why does he keep doing it? Why does Bart keep calling out, son of David, Jesus, son of David? Because he knows as any good Jew that Bar David is messianic. By this point in the first century, the name Bar David, son of David, is a messianic, it's a title that exclusively belonged to Messiah as far as the Jewish people were concerned. The calmest Jewish Jewish person on the street would have known if you said Ben David, they would have said, oh, Ben David, yeah, son of David, that's Messiah. It was very commonly understood at this point. And so for Bartimaeus, this blind man sitting there hearing about Yeshua coming into town, no doubt he had heard other things, no doubt he'd heard enough because he knew who Jesus was. He believed with no sight whatsoever. He believed in his heart who Jesus was. Yeshua, Yeshua ben David, have mercy on me. And I love Jesus' response. He doesn't say, go, your faith has made you well, as your translation may say. Literally, he says, go, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. In that moment, Bartimaeus saved by faith in the Messiah. Well, okay, if if it was common by that point, Ben David, son of David, that that's Messiah, how? How did it ever get there? You track all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, a story that we'll come to, Lord willing, in a few weeks. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where the Lord says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there was a sense of the eternal built into that promise that the Jewish people had never forgotten. Isaiah came along about 300 years later, after David. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 13. And the Lord said through the prophet, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you'll try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name God with us. Emmanuel, out of the house of David, Messiah ben David. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, Messiah ben David. Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Yeshai, Jesse, David's father. 
and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And if you read on through the rest of Isaiah 11, the whole thing talks about the Messiah. Messiah, son of David. So it was a title of the long-awaited king in David's lineage, and by the way, gained even more prominence after these prophecies, after the promise of God in in Talmudic writings, so Jewish commentaries, going back as far as 300 B.C., It was already being discussed among the rabbis that Messiah ben David, Messiah ben David. There was some confusion because they began to read their own prophets about Messiah's suffering, and they're saying, well, how does that fit Messiah ben David? And some came up with Messiah ben Joseph. So you had Messiah the king and Messiah the sufferer, and some thought maybe there were gonna be two messiahs. They got confused because they were trying to read into prophecy. I've told you before, Bible prophecy is a whole lot easier to interpret after it's happened, you know? So they were trying to figure out, but Messiah ben David became ingrained in Jewish consciousness. This is the name of the Messiah. So as blind Bartimaeus is crying out, Yeshua, son of David, Yeshua ben David, have mercy on me, he knew what he was asking. With enough faith that Jesus said, saved you're saved. And of course, his eyesight was returned as well, which that in and of itself was messianic. Isaiah 35 talks about that, that that he would restore the sight of the blind. It's fantastic. Matthew chapter one, verse one, the New Testament carries on this theme, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David. Matthew 22, 42, Jesus asks a compelling question of the Pharisees. He says, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees said to him, of David, son of David. We all know that. What an elementary question. And then Jesus blows him away, but that's a different story. Uh, Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. So this morning in 1 Samuel 16, we come to one of the most important chapters. As I said, in the Bible, this is the debut of David. We have not heard the name until now. And we will never hear another referred to by that name in the Bible. David is the only David, David, in the Bible. There is no other. This is a highly significant name, highly significant person, and we are just now in 1 Samuel going to meet him for the first time. David. It's his debut, but really it deals with something far more important, far more significant, and it also begins with remarkably humble circumstances. For us here 3,000 years later, looking back at David, looking back at the kingdom of David and all of the legacy and even legend of David, to go to Israel and walk through the city of David and consider the impact of David. And by the way, many of you know this, David was not even recognized as legitimate historically until, what was it, 97? 97? when the inscription House of David was found on a steel up in Tel Dan? Amazing, suddenly now, oh, well now we have archeological evidence that there was a David. (laughs) When we've known all along, but this, this David, this great king, 
This one who, the prophets even suggest he will come back as sort of a vice president under Jesus in the kingdom. I mean, this is big. And his beginnings are very, very humble. In fact, before we even meet him, we find Samuel the prophet dealing with grief. Verse one. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve? By the way, grieve there, the word is mourn. It is the word used when you've lost a loved one. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. God sees. He sees the heart of the broken prophet. Samuel is heartbroken. He is in a depression over the failure of Saul. We see at this point, as we began to see Wednesday night, Samuel really did love Saul. Samuel had high hopes that though the people had rejected God as king, that this man could stand up and, and being filled with the spirit, after all, Saul had prophesied, right? Saul had acted mightily under the power of the Holy Spirit. So Samuel's thinking, Saul's our guy. And then he begins to see these soulish failures in the life of Saul. Each one a heartbreak for the prophet, but still he's hopeful, he's hanging on. Come on, Saul, come on, you can get this. You can do this. And things go from bad to worse. And the Lord rejects Saul because, note this, Saul had rejected the Lord. Saul determined, and we see this more in behavior and action and attitude than we do in, in overt words, but Saul had determined to live it out in his soul, to be the soul man, to, to, to figure things out and work things out in the strength of his body and in the wisdom of his might, and just to do it that way, he didn't really need the Lord. That was religion, that was a side thing for the people, and he had already rejected God, so the Lord rejects Saul from being king over his people. And here's Samuel depressed. In fact, the last verse of chapter 15 says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. Samuel has sunk into depression. His mourning has overtaken him, and he's just staying home. He's not on the prophetic circuit. He's not out doing his job. He is just mourning and grieving over Saul, and the Lord looks right into his heart. Understand, as many of you do, that grief untended can be incapacitating. Grief untended can be incapacitating. I, I, you may be familiar with the song. Back in 1976, Jackson Brown came out with a song. It ended up being one of his most popular singles. Many people didn't even know the history of the song. It's called The Pretender. And in the song, he wrote because he had tragically lost his wife. She left him alone then to raise their toddler son, and so he wrote The Pretender. Here's the beginning of it. He says, I'm gonna rent myself a house in the shade of the freeway, gonna pack my lunch in the morning and go to work each day, and when the evening rolls around, I'll go home and lay my body down. And when the morning light comes streaming in, I'll get up and do it again. Amen. Just get up and do it again. Later in the song, he says, say a prayer for the pretender. Pretending to live life, pretending to be okay, pretending to get by because he doesn't know how else to survive. The 
untended heart doesn't know what to do but just fake it till you make it. And yet, it's not a pretense, it's not posing to get up and do it again. That is part of the healing process, although when you're in that place, you feel like you're going through the motions and it's the most phony you've ever been in your life, but the Lord, he tends to Samuel's mourning heart by calling him to a new mission. How long are you gonna grieve? Fill your horn with oil and go. I have a new, go to Bethlehem, get up and do it again. Verse two, but Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Yeshai, Jesse, to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one to whom I, or the one whom I designate to you. Number one in your notes, note this. I'll give you five things to jot down this morning. Number one, the antidote or an antidote to grief. An antidote to grief. And the antidote is very simply, get up and do it again. Get up and go. Samuel, fill your horn with oil. The antidote to grief is you move forward. That may sound harsh, especially as we're grieving, but it is exactly what Jesus said to Peter at the last Passover. Do you remember this? He says, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. When the morning light comes streaming in, Peter, get up and do it again, amen. It is the tending of the heart by God to move us forward in faith, even if that faith is small. When you've turned again, when you wake up the next morning, you keep going. Speaking of the pretender, some have wondered if this plan for Samuel to go to Bethlehem doesn't have a touch of false pretense. Saul will kill me if he finds out I'm going to anoint another king, and so God goes, yeah, you know, good point. Tell you what, let's fake him out. Just go and act like you're gonna offer sacrifice. It, it seems a little on the deceptive side. Is that what God's up to here? Now, it's, it's a ridiculous question if you know the Lord, but there are those who ask, is God encouraging Samuel uh, to sacrifice as a ruse or a deception? And the answer is, of course not. But understand, going to anoint a king would have involved sacrifice anyway. So it was not a lie or a deception to say he's going up to Bethlehem to offer up a sacrifice. Of course he was, that's part of the process, that's part of what he would do. But what the Lord advises Samuel to do here is not to entrust himself to the full purpose, not to say to others, I'm going up to offer sacrifice and anoint a new king. They don't need all the information. All they need to know is that you're going to offer sacrifice. I'll take care of the rest. You just do this part. And by the way, that's, sometimes that's just wisdom. Jesus on his part, John 2, 24, was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. There were things Jesus knew about himself as Messiah that he didn't talk about early on in his ministry. He wasn't being deceptive. He just wasn't sharing the full details because he knew what people would do with it. So the Lord says to Samuel, go, 
to offer the sacrifice. Don't worry about the anointing. And by the way, the Lord doesn't even tell him he's gonna, who he's gonna anoint. So Samuel doesn't even have all the information. Go to Bethlehem. You're gonna anoint someone. Don't worry about that part. Go and offer the sacrifice that I require you to offer. And in so doing, God sets the grieving man back on his feet, back on mission. Did Samuel feel great about it the moment God said that as he walked out his door? All right, I'm gonna, no. I guarantee not. Samuel was a human being. I guarantee he grieved his way to Bethlehem. He probably found himself in the sacrificial time confused about, but what about Saul? But okay, all right, somehow I'm supposed to move forward here. And even when it comes to the anointing, as we'll see, How's Samuel feeling? We can only ask him when we see him, but I would assume he's still kind of struggling with this whole thing, but God's got him moving. God's got him moving. Moving forward does tend to grieve. And so that is an antidote to grief, to get back on mission, but then we would say, well, that sounds great. Okay, put your shoes on, get up and do it again. How, how do we really do that? And even that is answered here. Fill your horn with the oil of anointing. Get up and fill your horn with the oil of anointing. Now, we've been talking about this, but let me pull you back into it. Listen, understand, first of all, the horn of anointing. You know that, that, that weird logo that we've been using for this teaching series on ascendancy that, that uh, Larry at one point said it looks like a hearing aid, right? Yeah, with oil coming out of it, I'm like, that's really nasty. Well, we, we fixed it, we tweaked it. I think it looks more like a shofar now than it did. Are you with me, shofar, Larry? Okay. So the, the, the horn of anointing and the shofar, same thing. It was the ram's horn. So the ram's horn that was blown was also the, the same horn. They'd cap the top of it if they needed to, and then they would fill it with oil and hang it, and they would use that to anoint, and they would pour, and they would smear the anointing oil on a king, So that horn itself became, as we see in the scriptures, a symbol of authority. There is oil coming from authority. This is the picture of authority, which is why, note this, Psalm 132 says, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the, for the mighty one of Jacob. David wanted to build God a temple. David wanted to be the builder of the temple. He would end up designing it, but would not build it. And that's the whole story in 2 Samuel chapter seven. But the psalm goes on and says, behold, we heard of it in Ephratah, Bethlehem. We found it in the field of Yaar. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool, footstool, saying, let's go up to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. Verse 13 says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it as as his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision, satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. Her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. And, verse 17, there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared, (coughs) excuse me, a lamp for mine anointed. I gotta read that verse again. 
There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth, the horn, the authority. There I prepared a lamp for mine anointed. A lamp for mine anointed, understand that the king was anointed with oil. The lampstand was filled with oil. Both cases are pictures of what? The Holy Spirit. Oil in the Bible, that picture of the Holy Spirit portraying both that which ignites the lampstand, and, and by the lamp, why the lampstand, the menorah itself, was a picture of the Holy Spirit in the holy place, keeping the place lit up as the priest came in to serve. The oil of anointing portraying the Spirit of God coming upon a person who is anointed to rule. Listen to me, if you are stuck in doubt, if you are mired in sorrow, get back on your horn. <laughs> get back to your authority. Get back to the oil of anointing. Samuel, don't bemoan the past. Go to the anointed one. Go to the one whom you will anoint, but the one who becomes the anointed one. And that's the same word to all who grieve. Don't bemoan what is lost. Go forward with the anointed one, the Mashiach. Go forward with Mashiach ben David. Now some would say, all right, I, I, I'm hearing you, so, so trust in Jesus, move forward. But I think I need more information. I, I, I need more understanding. Samuel didn't have it. Samuel, did, again, did not know who he was going to anoint. God just said, fill the horn with oil. I'll show you what to do. In fact, that's the exact language we have in verse three. I will show you what you shall do. Well, so what am I supposed to do, Lord? Trust me. Trust me. You trust me. I will show you what to do. You realize that we don't have to know all the mission parameters to go on mission? It's on an as-needs-to-know basis. And serving God is very much that way. Genuine trust does not require, nor does it demand, full disclosure. Jesus said in John 14, 1, the night of his betrayal, he said to the apostles, do not let your heart be troubled. How can't we be troubled, Lord? Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the deal. That's where it all starts. That's how you get up and do it again. The Lord doesn't even name David again. Samuel doesn't know who's gonna get anointed. But this, this mission is to go forward and go forward. Trust me, I will show you what to do. And so the antidote for grief. Secondly, an anointing to help you see. Verse four. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, <laughs> do you come in peace? There was a lot of power in Samuel and the people recognized it. They never really knew why he was showing up. He said, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Yeshai and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He wasn't before him, and his name wasn't Shirley. <laughs> Verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Samuel's doing the exact same thing he did with Saul. 
Saul was tall. He was head and shoulders above all others in Israel, which doesn't refer to the kind of shampoo he used. He was taller, right? And so now, here comes Samuel to Bethlehem, and here's Eliab, oldest son, firstborn son of Yeshai. Wow, this guy's tall too. Hey, we've got a new king. No, no, Samuel. I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, then Yeshai called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Yeshai made Shema pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And thus, Yeshai made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Yeshai, the Lord has not chosen these. Listen, in this act of anointing, one after another after another, seven sons. You think, okay, there, there's a complete group of sons right there, so we're gonna find an anointed one somewhere in here, right? No, 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 no. And God takes Samuel. This is also part of the pulling him out of the grieving process. This is part of the heart training of Samuel the prophet himself, even as hopefully for us this morning, God shows him all of these and they're, they're good-looking kids, and they're tall, and they're strong, and they're you know the best of the best of the sons of Yeshai, and the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. God is teaching Samuel to finally comprehend how God sees people. And again, back in verse seven, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, the Lord looks at. And I wanna hone in on this for a moment. Focus, get this. The word looks at is ra'ah, ra'ah, and it means see, to look, to behold, and it is the key word in the passage. That's the word to, to see, if you will, to look at. It's the key word not only because it's here in verse seven, but it also appears nine times in chapter 16. This is the amazing thing about scripture. If we were reading it in the Hebrew, these things would pop as we were reading and we would understand God is calling significance to this point. If there's one point in 1 Samuel 16, this is it, that God sees, not as man sees, but God looks at, God sees the heart. This word is used, uh, I said nine times, it's in the verb provide. It's the same word, translated provide in verse one and in verse 17. It's in the verbs uh, look at. We see it translated look at in verse six, three times in verse seven, and then finally again in verse 18. And it's seen in the noun appearance in verse seven and in verse 12. So these nine different times, it's all getting our attention to think about seeing God's way. That is seeing what is good and seeing what is not so good. Being able to see, to discern, to understand, but with spiritual eyes rather than the physical, seven sons, each outwardly looking the part of the king, we can only assume we at least know the first one did. But... Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Jesus in John 2, 25 said, it says he did not need to testify or anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is always how God sees. He looks internally. He looks at the heart, but get this, 
This is point number two, an anointing to help you see, to help me see, because as the Lord looks at the heart, he anoints his people to do the same thing. He anoints us to look at the heart, to be able to see at a spiritual level. This comes by the anointing of the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. I love that verse. It's so absolutely accurate. Have you noticed this? Especially among believers that you stop seeing all the little foibles and age spots and you know, stuff on people's face. You just don't really see that stuff anymore. We all see it personally because we start the day in the mirror going, oh man, where did that come from? Actually worse is in the afternoon when you go home and look in the mirror and you're like, there's a hair. Where did that come from? You know, you're pulling it out. We look at that stuff on ourselves. No one else does. No one else does. I don't see you that way. You don't see me that way. We recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Paul says, even though we saw him in the flesh, we don't know him that way anymore. And that's not how we know each other. We know each other by heart. And that's something beautiful about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Maybe something you haven't really thought about. When you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have an enabling to see how you could not see before to look at people in a different light. It changes everything. The anointing changes how I live, it changes the fruit I bear, and it even changes how I see. See, you get the oil of, of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your eyes, you will see people differently. You'll see lost people differently. Suddenly you won't be so ticked off and angry at their foolishness, you'll feel compassion. Suddenly with a brother or sister in Christ, when they offend you, oh, I'll tell you what, if you're offended by a brother or sister in Christ, the first thing to do is pray in the Spirit because then he will give you the anointing to see them with forgiveness, to speak the same words of Jesus, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Suddenly now I have an assumption for my brothers and sisters that maybe they really didn't mean to offend me. Maybe they really didn't know. And even if they intended to, they really don't know what they did. Forgiveness flows. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it is especially important when we get caught up in carnal or soulish living, which is easy to do. In fact, Jesus said, Revelation 3.18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may, may become rich, truly rich. White garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And eye salve, to anoint, anoint your eyes, why Jesus? So that you may see. Not as man sees, but as the Lord sees. Have I mentioned you all have an anointing and you know? This is what we're talking about. And I'm so thankful for where we are because the Lord has been kind of unfolding this, trying to explain it, give us further understanding of this anointing of the Holy Spirit that is upon everyone who receives Christ, everyone who knows Christ. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know, well, what does that mean? It means you're gonna see differently. It means now you're gonna look on the heart as God looks on the heart. Well, I really struggle with that. Pray in the Spirit. 
Ask the Lord to help you see the way he has enabled you to see, and that is spiritually. Verse 11. Verse 11 continues, and Samuel said to Yeshai, are these all the children? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Yeshai, send and bring him. We will not sit down until he comes here. Number three, an unassuming shepherd. An unassuming shepherd. Now, track with me for a few minutes on this. This is remarkable. It's remarkable in its shameful humility. Here is the eighth son, and he's a cast-off. He is a nobody. He is uncared for in the family. He is unwanted. He is dismissed. How do you know? Because in Eastern culture, there is no way a son of Yeshai in Bethlehem would be off tending sheep when an important dignitary prophet came to town and all the other sons are marched before the prophet. No way David wouldn't have been there unless no one wanted him to be there. Unless he had been summarily dismissed, they are having a feast and he is not invited. Instead, he is out doing the menial, smelly, sheepish task of a slave shepherding. Why? Why is David out there? What's, what's, what are we missing here that would cause you shy? And by the way, the rabbis tell us it's tradition. We don't know if it's true, but traditionally speaking, Yeshai was the head of the Sanhedrin. Head of the 70. And Jesse was no nobody. He, this is a named guy, an important man in Bethlehem, and he has dismissed his son. Why? Turning your Bibles over to Psalm 51, and you're just gonna, gonna wanna keep a finger there because we're gonna come back to it at least one more time in a few minutes. But Psalm 51. And I want you to look with untrained eyes at verse five. What I mean by untrained eyes is don't look with 2,000 years of church tradition. Just look at what it says. David is writing, of course, Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance. He's been called out for his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and all of the cover-up and everything, this horrible situation, which is another story we will soon come to. But in this psalm of repentance, David says in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, or literally with sin, my mother conceived me. So for 2,000 years, and you can go back, the early church fathers made an assumption about Psalm 51, verse five. They interpreted it as an argument for the sin nature. Now, let me just say, we don't have to make an argument for the sin nature. The Bible's very clear that we all have a sin nature, and we all act out of it. So we don't need another verse to prove it, but that's how this verse was, was taken, kind of allegorized that, well, David's just saying he had a sin nature, and that's why he sinned. But that's not what he says. He says, with sin, my mother conceived me, that there was a sin act, or at least that it was viewed as a sinful act when it happened. That's how the, 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 the early church fathers said, okay, that's just speaking of the sin nature, but that's not the old rabbi's take. And again, you can go way back. There is a Jewish tradition related to David and Psalm 51 and even to this verse and to David's mother. 
By the way, what's David's mother's name? Anyone know? Mom? <laughs> Whoever just said that, happy Mother's Day. That's, that's, what, that's what you get this morning. No, she has a name, but we don't see it in the Bible anywhere. We know that, that uh, we know his great-grandmother, David's great-grandmother was Ruth, right? Ruth and, and Boaz had, had Obed. Obed had Yeshai. Yeshai then is David's father, but we don't have his mother's name anywhere in scripture. It's interesting because when we get into the kings, first and second kings, many of the king's mothers are gonna be named, not David's, not the most important king who ever reigned over Israel. We never hear his mother's name. She is only marginally mentioned in a few places. Here in Psalm 51, with sin my mother conceived me, which wouldn't make for a real happy Mother's Day for her, but we see it in three other places we see 1 Samuel 22, verse three, where David says to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time. David was in the stronghold. This is when David's on the run from Saul, another future story. And to protect his parents, he takes them over to Moab and says, stay here. And he has a good relationship apparently with the king and says, can they stay? Yeah, they can stay here. His mother. So she's mentioned there. She's mentioned in Psalm 51. She's mentioned in Psalm 69, verse eight, where David says, note this, I have become estranged from my brothers, an alien, he says, to my mother's sons. The outcast, right? By the way, Psalm 69 is also prophetic of Messiah ben David, who would be an outcast in his own family. But hold that thought. Psalm 86, verse 16, says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant and save the son, David speaking of himself, of your handmaid, speaking of, again, his mother. That's the final reference to his mother in the Bible. So we know David had a mother, obviously. She's referred to four times in the scriptures, but she is never once named. What is the rabbinical understanding? And by the way, we don't look at the rabbi's tradition. We don't look at, at Talmud or, or the Mishnahs or any of these other extra teachings outside of scripture. We don't look at these as inspired, but they can be helpful. And they are often historic. There's often very good history in, in Talmud. So understand that when I quote from Talmud, but this is actually out of Tractate Bava Batra, if you'd like to look it up. Here's the story. Jesse, as I said before, Yeshai, was a leader of the Sanhedrin, stationed there in Bethlehem, six miles right outside, just across the valley from Jerusalem, which of course was not a thing yet. And he began to have serious doubts about his ancestry. He began thinking about Ruth was a Moabite, not a Jew. This is, so as a higher up in Israel, as a leader, I don't know if my ancestry's legit. And in his own confusion about this, after having all these other sons, seven sons, he separates from his wife. His wife's name, according to the rabbis, was Netzavet. Netzavet bat Adel. She dropped the first two names and went on to a great illustrious singing career. <laughs> Netzavet. No one knew when they separated, no one knew why. And the rabbis say it was because of 
of Yeshai's upset and confusion as he grew older about his lineage and about where he came from, separated from his beloved wife. But after a time, and this is typical of, of, of soulish thinking, he began to think, but I, I really need to know I've got a solid Jewish heir. And so he schemed to have Nitzavet's maidservant lie with him to bear him a child, kind of like Abraham. If I do like Abraham, then my heir will be legitimate, even though my, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just a human thing, right? So he's thinking this through. He comes up with this plan, and he tells the maid, here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> Can you imagine being the maid? So she knew, the maid knew that Netzavet loved Yeshai, and she suggested a counter plan. Remember Leah and Rachel? Let's switch places. So that night, under the dark of night, it actually was Nitzavet who went in and lay with her estranged husband, and she became pregnant. Well, since the two of them were separated as far as the family and the community knew, everybody assumes that she had committed adultery and the birth was illegitimate. Sound familiar? This is an illegitimate birth in Bethlehem. But... Rather than shame her, at this point, Yeshai takes her back and they raise David as their own, which of course he was, but nobody else knew. And Nitzavet couldn't say anything because it would embarrass her husband and her husband couldn't say anything because it would embarrass his wife, so they just kept that quiet, but the shame landed on David. This little boy was raised as though illegitimate. Is the story true? Again, we don't know the truth of it, but this is what the rabbis say, and this is what tradition has handed down about David. All we really can know for certain is what David says, and he says, with sin, my mother conceived me. And he says, I'm an outcast, even for my brothers, the sons of my own mother. So we, we have these puzzle pieces that are before us. By the way, any of you feel like an outcast in your family? Don't raise your hand. Feel like you're the one who's just kind of no one wants or cares about. You're the insignificant. You're the worthless one. You're the afterthought. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Regardless of what family or friends may at times say that's hurtful, the Lord is looking at your heart. And in verse 12, he sent and brought him in. <clears throat> now he was ruddy, that's, that's reddish. And he may have had reddish hair, some think he had red hair. He may have just been reddish tan, like really bronzed out from working, but he had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Well, I thought you said the Lord looks at the heart. He does, that's the beautiful thing about this. David's a good looking kid too, but that's irrelevant. That has nothing to do with God's choice. And so the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Good-looking kid. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, God will later say, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. This humble beginning forever shaped the heart of David. 
You gotta realize that because that, that's similar to many of our lives, our beginnings, our upbringing. It does have impact and influence. It does tend to shape and God's looking for one who would be shaped in this way. One who would say, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? By that point, David is king and he's still saying, I don't deserve this. Why would you do this for me? Psalm 8, verse three, probably written as a young man out on the hills of Bethlehem, looking up at the stars, saying, who is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? David is blown away that there is a God of the universe that actually cares for him. He knows he cares for him. He just almost can't believe it. And that's the right heart. Psalm 78, verse 70 tells us, he also chose David, his servant, and brought him from the sheepfolds and from the care of the ewes and the suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And so he shepherded them, it says, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hand. According to the integrity of his heart. The, the, the Hebrew word there is Tom. Happy Father's Day, Tom. That's just for you. The integrity the innocence, the simplicity of his heart, this is what made David different. Humble beginnings. He knew who he was even later in life. He knew who he was with relation to God, and he loved God who would love him first. But think about that. Born in the off-the-beaten-path Bethlehem, called from the sheepfolds to be a shepherd king. What a picture how much more Mashiach ben David, born in the same sheepfolds of Bethlehem, born of even more humble circumstances than David, and born with similarly questionable circumstances. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Or Jeremiah 31, the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, a woman will encompass a man. Well, that's not a new thing. That happens with every boy that's ever been born. A woman encompassed a man at some point, right? No, but this is gonna be a new thing. And it's prophetic of the Messiah. But like David, the stigma of ambiguous parentage stuck with Jesus throughout his entire life and ministry. Some of you have heard the proof of this before. In John chapter eight, Verses 40 and 41, Jesus is, is having a back and forth with the Pharisees, and he says, you are doing the deeds of your father, and he's referring to the devil, and they're kind of picking up on that, and so they say to him, we were not born of fornication. Like you. We have one father, God, and Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. That's huge. That is Jesus' self-declaration that as Messiah, he is Emmanuel, that he did come forth from God. The Jews would recognize he just made himself equal with God again. And this, by the way, is a vast difference between David and Messiah ben David. Jesus proceeded forth from God. Jesus is the great shepherd. Well, verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil 
and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David, said the same thing about Saul, but this is different from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And this is the first time, verse 13, first time we see the name of David in the Bible. When the spirit comes mightily upon David. And now we know who's anointed. And we know the name. And we're aware of him. But it's interesting that the writer is careful not to say that he was anointed king. Just says he was anointed. Did you know David has three anointings? He's anointed here in Bethlehem, anointed to receive the Spirit of God. But it's only the first anointing, and it's not anointing to be king, though he would be, and though it's looking to that, it's not, hey, he's anointed now, boot Saul, David's king. What's gonna happen is a decade is going to go by, and at the end of that decade, he will finally be anointed, second time, anointed king over the tribe of Judah, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. Another seven years are gonna go by before finally in his third anointing, he's going to be anointed to rule over all Israel, 2 Samuel 5, verse three. Three anointings. You know what's very interesting? Maybe look at your own life. Think about this pattern. Three anointings, and yet from first to third, in the time between, it would be 20 years of pruning and proving and persecution. Anointed by God, the Spirit comes upon him mightily, and right into persecution he goes. Unlike Saul, as I said, Saul, the Spirit came mightily upon Saul. But with David, the words are added from that day forward. That is, the Holy Spirit never left. Once the Spirit came upon David, he never departed David. In fact, at the very end of David's life, he's singing what we call the final song of David, 2 Samuel 23, verse two. He says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. David knew that the spirit had never left him. His trials, his traumas, his difficulties come and go, but David does not go through them alone. He's not gonna face any of the difficulties ahead of him alone because once the Spirit came upon David, the Spirit remained, and the same is true of all who are in Christ. You've had trials, you've had difficulties, you've had pains. I gave my life to Jesus years ago, and look at what I've had to go through, and he has never left you, and he has always remained with you. Well, I didn't know, I didn't. Doesn't matter whether you felt him or not. The truth of his word and his promise to you is he doesn't leave. He's there. He's with you through it all. Jesus, these are Jesus' words. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, John 14, 15, and 16, that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you, and Jesus repeats this throughout John 14, 15, and 16. It's repeated in other places. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then you have an anointing, and you all know. Because he doesn't depart. It doesn't mean you're not gonna go through trials and traumas and difficulties. When we go to Israel, we go to En Gedi. En Gedi is beautiful. 
caves and waterfalls and you climb up to the top and on an Israel trip, it's a hoot to do that. Try living there. Well, that's a completely different thing. Trying to get yourself comfortable with the rocks and pebbles and settle your head on a rock and up there because you can't be anywhere else because you're hiding out for your very life. And yet the Holy Spirit was with him. But watch this. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Oy vey. What do we do with that? You know, it's so interesting to me. We as Christians will struggle with things like this. The um, ancient rabbis had no problem with it whatsoever. They just read it. Okay, that's, that's the deal. What do you mean that's the deal? Yeah, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon him. Well, that's not okay. Well, that's what happened. So if you want to ask me, Rick, is it possible that an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him? The answer is yes, because it says so. What do you want me to tell you? Well, explain it. I don't know. I, we, we can try, but that's what... Listen. First of all, understand, this is, this is, uh, there's an Older Testament phenomenon at work here. And that's the fact that the Holy Spirit departed from Saul in the first place. That is an ancient Israel phenomenon. The Holy Spirit came upon people selectively and temporarily often. Selectively, so not everyone, and often temporarily, so not ongoing, but after Pentecost, Shavuot in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit abides with believers permanently and pervasively. So get that difference. Before the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, selectively and temporarily, so you may or may not be one of those on whom the Holy Spirit would rest, but with believers, permanently and pervasively, he is with you. You have an anointing in this, do you know? But again, people struggle with, and I'm gonna make this actually our fourth point, many people struggle with the very idea that God would send, number four, an aggravating evil spirit. An aggravating evil spirit. Understand, first of all, in the Hebrew, an evil spirit, this is ruach ra'ah. And it's not, ra'ah is the, the word for sight, but it's, it's a different ra'ah, different, slightly different spelling, it's a different word. Ruach ra'ah, or ruach ra'ah, which is literally translated a spirit that causes disaster. Well, Rick, I know ra'ah can also mean evil. Okay, so use the word evil. But see, we view evil as this intrinsically, inherently sinful thing. The Bible views evil as anything that's bad. So actually, if you were a rabbi, you pull over on the side of the road because you got a flat tire, you could say, well, that's evil. <laughs> kind of a disaster. We think of evil as this intrinsically, inherently wicked thing. Ra'ah simply means, it can mean evil, it can mean disastrous, it can mean destructive, it can mean problematic, troublesome. That's the word ra'ah. That's how the, the rabbis would look at it. And so literally this translates a spirit, ruach, that causes disaster. Guess what? The Lord is a spirit who causes disaster, Bible says, I am the one who creates chaos and calamity. <laughs> Look that verse up. You wanna really freak out about this? He is sovereign God. That's the point. And that's why I say Hebraic thinking has no problem with this because God is sovereign. God is king. 
God can do whatever he wants to do, whether I understand it or not. Even if I'm sitting in my study with scrolls unrolled saying, Oy vey, he's still God. He can still do whatever he wants. He is king over all. And also being sovereign, we also know that he defines goodness. He defines, he's not, goodness doesn't define God. God defines goodness. He is goodness in and of himself, which means everything he does when he creates calamity, it's because there is an ultimate goodness in it. When he causes chaos, it's because there is an ultimate goodness that he is working out, that he is bringing about. This is why a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about intercessory prayer, that you can actually pray for someone that the bottom drops out. You're not praying that you want them to experience disaster or pain, but you'd rather they experience disaster, come to the end of themselves, and believe in Jesus than coast through life and die with no salvation. Right? Why would you pray that way? It's the goodness that you want for the person. So what we see here with Saul, an evil spirit, it's not, technically it's not an evil spirit, a wicked spirit sent from God. It is a spirit that brings destruction. A spirit that will be sent from God. We have this weird, and at first I was thinking, is this Western thinking? No, it's actually Eastern mysticism. It's the yin-yang. We have this weird concept, and it's really been pushed in our media in America through the Star Wars franchise the light side and the dark side of the force, and we need someone to come bring balance to the force. There's no force but God. And God is sovereign, and God is awesome, and God is overall, and by the way, I love Star Wars, but that's irrelevant. That's just fun, that's fantasy, it's not real. When we talk about what is real, God is king over all. Satan needed God's permission to afflict Job. Why would God do that? Goodness and mercy, he had a work he was going to do in Job's life, and he would be proven by the end of that book as God over all. Legion, remember Legion? Required the consent of Jesus to go into a herd of swine, causing them to rush off a cliff and make pulled pork stew. (laughs) And what have we been hearing in this chapter? The Lord looks at the heart. God is dealing with the heart. God's purpose is always to reach into and deal with the heart of a person. And I've said this before, I'll say it again this morning, whatever it takes. God knows if there's a way to save the heart of this man, of this woman, even if the only way to do it is painful on the surface, God will do it if it'll bring that person into eternity. And I guarantee you, that person in eternity we'll look back and say, I'm so thankful for the pain and the heartache and the difficulty because God looks at the heart. By the way, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, I think gives a little more insight. It says, all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. This is talking about during the tribulation period Come out ahead, the last seven years of this age, God's gonna send a deluding influence so they'll believe what is false in order that they may all be judged. Why? Who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. This is the problem. If you reject the goodness of God, you are an open vessel for evil. 
Jesus described that in the parable when an evil spirit departs someone, goes through arid and dry places looking to see what it'll find and when it doesn't find anything, it goes back and finds the house swept and clean, empty, clean, but empty, and takes seven spirits stronger than itself and takes over the house. And the whole picture is someone who has driven out evil but has not replaced their spirit with the Holy Spirit. Empty, open for anything to come in. This is Saul. This is the soul man who has in and of himself rejected the spiritual. I got this, I can do this myself. So God says, really? Here you go. And a spirit that brings or causes evil will now enter Saul and will afflict Saul. Why? I believe because God still loves Saul. And I think we're gonna see a turning of the heart of Saul toward the end. Later with David, we're gonna see some realization come upon Saul, though his, his rule ends uh, sadly on, on Mount Gilboa. Still, I think there, there, there is hope for Saul. But the Lord looks at the heart and the difference between, note this, the difference between Saul and David, this is huge. Saul who lost the Holy Spirit and David who never did, right? Both kings sinned. Both kings sinned royally. <laughs> and you can say by outward appearance, David's sin seems far worse than Saul's. David put a man to the front lines and had him killed so he could take his wife and no one would know. David's sin is unbelievable. Here's the difference. When David was caught in his sin, his response was deeply spiritual and repentant. David said in Psalm 51, verse one, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Yes, that's true, but you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you've broken rejoice. Oh, hide your, your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities, and listen to this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because David knows the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. And David's greatest fear as he repents to the Lord of his sin is that he might lose the presence of the Lord. That is amazing. That's the spiritual man. This, this David. And, and by the way, it's not just the impact of that spirit causing evil on Saul. Understand that the, the, the spirit causing evil on Saul, the spirit bringing destruction on Saul brings destruction on David. David has to feel the fallout of, of all of this. This is going to impact David after his anointing. David, the outcast in his family, becomes the outlaw of Israel. 
David's the one who Saul is gonna try and kill him over and over in his life. Why? Because of this spirit of, of, of evil that's on Saul that came by the Lord. You think the Lord didn't know this spirit was gonna also impact David for the next 17 plus years of his life? But David is a man after the heart of God. And God who sees the heart knows what Saul needs and he knows what David needs as well. By the way, what happened with Messiah ben David? It says, after being baptized, Matthew 3, 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus took the throne and people started worshiping him and it was just noodle salad from that day forward. No. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So what we see in David's life, we see it's just a picture. It's, it's emulating, it's, it's portraying, it's pointing to the Messiah, Ben David, who is coming. So understand, here's something else just to get if you're taking side notes on the anointing that we've been talking about. Here's something else to understand. Not only does it help you to see, but the anointing is not only for the presence of the Spirit, it's also for the preparation of the Spirit, the protection of the Spirit. You are anointed that he will see you through. Because the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're gonna have persecution. You're gonna have hardship. You're gonna have outcast status in your life. You need the anointing of a spirit who does not leave. Well, verse 16, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul, see this is, if it had been heavy metal, that would not have helped. You know, it's just a harp. Anyway, verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Yeshai, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a man of mighty valor, uh, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Note that. The Lord is with him. And here's Saul from whom the Lord has departed. Keep that in mind. So Saul sent messengers to Yeshai and said, send me your son David who is with the flock. Yeshai took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. And then David came to Saul and attended him and Saul loved him greatly and he became, became his armor bearer. Saul said to Yeshai saying, let David now stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. And it came about whenever the spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play with his hand and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. This is such an interesting dynamic. This is number five in your notes, an alleviation of distress. An alleviation of distress. We're gonna end here, but listen to me. There's this soothing, refreshing peace that comes by a Nora Jones song. No, 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 by, by David's harp. By David's harp and by David's heart. 
is David has the very spirit of the Lord that Saul so desperately needs. David is gonna sing songs. He's gonna play his harp. It is going to refresh Saul, but there is a word play here for us. It is the Holy Spirit in David who's bringing the refreshing. The word refreshed is rock, roach, which is a word play on ruach, which is the spirit. It's an intentional word play. This is a very, very rarely used word in the scriptures, and it is a Hebrew word play on ruach, the word refreshment, a word play on the word spirit. And so David comes, and the one thing that the soul man really needs for peace is the spirit. What is it that Saul does? He calls in David, who now has the spirit, brings him before him, and every time David plays, all of the craziness in Saul's mind, all of the insanity and, and the, the unrest, it settles out, the evil spirit departs because the Holy Spirit is present in David. And Saul, maybe he can't explain it, but it's what the soul man really wants. He just can't wrap his head around it. He just can't seem to get there. Listen, 1 Samuel 16, it divides into two parts very neatly. Verses one through 13, God chooses David. Verses 14 through 23, Saul chooses David. Because Saul is a soul man who needs what the spiritual man has, though he does not understand it. What a story. Blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, cried out, Yeshua, Ben David, have mercy on me. Because as I said, even though he was blind, he could see what he needed. What he needed to truly be healed, and Jesus healed him. Why did Jesus heal him? Because Jesus looked on his heart. Jesus looked on his heart, behold. God sees, not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, then, is not just about the debut of David. It is about moving out of mourning. It is about having eyes anointed and opened. It is about seeing the great shepherd. And it's about how God sees the heart. And by the way, God is looking at your heart this morning. What does he see? What does he see? And how do you see Jesus, the son of David, today? Father, help us to see with anointed eyes. Help us, Lord, to be those who receive the Holy Spirit, who don't allow ourselves to be stuck in the soul or driven by the flesh, but to be spiritual people led by the anointing that you have given us of your Spirit, to be those who see each other in a new light and see this world differently because we see with spiritual eyes, to be those who, who look to the great shepherd to lead us in all things. To be those who understand that, Lord, you're looking right at our hearts, right here, right now, this morning. Lord, as you do that, would you look and see if there is any sinful way in us, any way of evil. And as David prayed, cleanse us, create in us a new heart, O oh God, and restore a right spirit within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're looking for that heart, you're desiring the Spirit of God, I invite you to give your life to Jesus. If you've never done that, the promise is yours in Jesus to receive the Spirit and to walk by the goodness of God.